0: So come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, I pray now that you would grace to us um, all that we need to listen and to understand and believe. And, and uh, that this word would be a deep blessing to us, uh, even as you glorify yourself through it. And I pray it prepares us even uh, to receive uh, from your table. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn please to Luke in chapter 9. I'll read, I'll read more than I've listed in the bulletin. I'll read verses 51 to 55. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, when the days drew near for him, that him is Jesus, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, To another village. Remember, during this time of Lent, we're talking about the so little expression "He for us, Jesus for us, His life for us, His life of obedience for us, His life counts for us." and Thus, all where He we disobeyed, He obeys for us, so that His righteousness is credited, or counted, or imputed. We could say uh, to us in theology proper that, by the way, is called the active of obedience of Christ. And then he gives his life for us uh, upon the cross, uh, so that his death, then is for us, counts as ours. He takes upon himself this death, really experiencing uh, the wrath of God for the sins of sinners, our just deserts. And so upon him, the iniquity of us all is placed. Isaiah says in chapter 53, and thus when he dies in our place, then we give to him our sin. Actually, the Lord places it upon him. God does the Father, and then he for us, we receive forgiveness of sins and his righteousness. theology proper, that's called the passive obedience of Christ. It's not that he was passive in it, but it was put upon him, if you will. In that sense, that that kind of, uh, that he for us was the very um, nature of our prayer of confession this morning. On the one hand, we plead his blood for forgiveness of sins, his death for us. But then we plead his righteousness for ours. And that was what you did back then. Uh, What I want to do today in the midst of this is simply to take up this one expression out of verse 51. We'll pick up some more of this next week, but this provides the introduction, if you will. But in verse 51, uh, what he writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, and I uh, I take that expression, taken up, to mean his ascension. Uh, and so uh, we know a day will come too long in the life of Jesus uh, that he'll be taken up, he'll ascend uh, into heaven and, and uh, receive the glory that was his before the foundation, before the creation of the world. Uh, So that taken up and that means his earthly mission in that sense, what he came to do in the incarnation is done. uh, Taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this sense of setting his face to go to Jerusalem means that he realized before he could be taken up, he had to go to Jerusalem. That something was going to happen in Jerusalem that was necessary for him then to complete his work and to to be taken up. It's very expressive language, this expression, set his face. Uh, it's, a, it's an Old Testament uh, phrase, an Old Testament expression. I read it earlier in Isaiah chapter 50. You might remember it as you have read Luke 9. I trust you're listening when I read these things. This isn't just a pause for you, but uh, you're actually listening. People say, why don't you uh, put the words up on the screen and all that while you're reading? And it's because I want you to listen. I want you to read. I want you to listen. Uh, I want you to learn to listen. I want all of us to learn to listen. It's good to learn to listen. I'm a little grandfatherly now, I can say that. Uh, learn to listen and, uh, and to listen to the voice of God, not my voice. To listen to the voice of God. And I know many of you, myself, might be a visual learner. like You like to look at it and all that. And I know that. I'm just trying to be difficult. But just all of us to be focused together and listening. So that's why I read it like that, and don't put the words up there. Maybe someday I will, but I don't think so. Um, but in Isaiah chapter 50, you may remember this expression. It's a little bit more even dramatic in verse 7. This is a, a, a really a, a passage um, that it needs to include some about the Messiah. I, uh, maybe that you recognize these words. Uh, you know, I gave my back to those who strike my cheeks, to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgracing and spitting. And so you, you recognize all of that as having taken place in the life of Jesus, at his trial and so forth. But then verse seven. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Right. So he sets his face like a flint to be obedient to his father, even setting his face to go to Jerusalem. Now you, you know what that idiom means, this, this setting my face in stone, like a flint, a hard rock. Nothing can change it. It's set. I've set my purpose. I, I have my plan. I know the will of God and I'm going to complete it and nothing is going to deter me. Not, not, not a better deal, not adversity, not fear, uh, uh, not threats, uh, nothing can change my direction. So that's what Jesus is saying. That he's setting his face. To go to Jerusalem. It's like a flint. It can't be changed. And, and I don't know. Because we don't know. I don't know if there was a, something. Visually different about Jesus. At that moment in time. That he got up that morning. And he, hey, you, they just said whoa. Something's different today. Heading in a different direction. We're no longer going to tool around Galilee. We're going to head off. To Jerusalem, that's the sense of it. You could see that, that um, even the Samaritans didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Again, that doesn't mean anything visual necessarily. It, just, it was clear that he wanted to go to Jerusalem and not stay there amongst them. And we know the difficulties of the Samaritans and Jews and all of that. But, but that's the sense of it, that he had this, 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 this purpose to go to Jerusalem Necessity he had to his face was set. Nothing would, nothing would deter him. And and no matter uh, where his travels will take us now, uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem. In fact, Luke uh, helps us to see that. If you would just begin reading from the from chapter nine in Luke and and read on, you would find by the time you get to verse uh, chapter seventeen, you might be wondering when's he going to get to Jerusalem? Well, in verse eleven, Luke says, "On the way to Jerusalem." He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So Luke's saying, I know, I know, I know. We're going to get there. And then in, in um, I'm sorry, that was chapter, I wanted verse, yeah, that's the one I wanted. And then in uh, uh, chapter uh, chapter 18 and verse uh, 31, uh, we see the same thing. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And so again, Luke's letting us know that that the, the plan's still good. He's still. Moving on. And then uh, in chapter 19, we read a similar thing. Verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And then uh, in the middle of chapter 19, we come into this triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, and he enters into Jerusalem. So Luke wants to let us know that he hasn't forgotten. Jesus hasn't forgotten. He's moving along in that, in that direction. Jerusalem was an important city to the Israelites. Jesus, of course, had been there. He was presented at the temple as, as a baby. You remember the announcements by that old man, Simeon, that old woman, Anna, that, okay, now the Messiah has come. At 12 years old, you remember, Jesus was in Jerusalem. His, past, his family had celebrated the Passover, and he stayed around to, to talk and, uh, and, uh, and uh, discuss, if you will, with the teachers there. Uh, no doubt as an adult. Jewish man, he would go back to Jerusalem for the various feasts for Passover. John in his gospel speaks to us of Jesus being in, in Jerusalem for a Passover or so, and perhaps tabernacles and Pentecost, these Old Testament, but still active Jewish feasts in the days of Jesus. So he knew of Jerusalem. The temple was there, the meeting place of God with his people And the way that God could live amongst his people and his people amongst God and the way that he could meet with them was in the context of sacrifice. There was sacrifice made in Jerusalem. The lambs, goats, animals were killed as substitutes for the people. And Jesus would know that. And so when Jesus was saying that he was going to go up to Jerusalem, he was setting his face to die. He was setting his face to die. Nothing was going to deter him. This wouldn't be the end of his mission, his death. But it was necessary for the completion of his mission, his death. And so he was going to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint. He set his face, trusting his father. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. To die, He had already told his disciples about this. He had told them that, that uh, he was going to go to Jerusalem and that there he would be betrayed and there he would be abused, if you will, beaten by chief priests and the teachers of the law and he would be killed and on the third day he would rise again. When he set his face to go to Jerusalem, he set his face Really, to die. So so the question today is, how does knowing that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem feed our souls? How does it feed our souls? Well, first this. It tells me that, that when Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he's telling us that he would give himself for us. That this was his plan. It was his idea. It was to do this. It was, in a sense, not coerced. He desired. He wanted. He was willing to go to Jerusalem. I I read earlier in the service this passage from John in chapter 10. It's a well-known one to us. It's it's this passage about Jesus being the door, but also being our good shepherd. Um, He's going to come for his sheep. This is in, in some sense a fulfillment of what The shepherds were to be in Old Testament Israel. It's a fulfillment of what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 34. I'm sorry, the prophet Ezekiel in in Ezekiel in chapter 34. We read this, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that I have been Then verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then verse 23 or 22. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them One shepherd. My servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my shepherd, my servant David, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I've spoken. And so when Jesus shows up and he says, I'm the good shepherd. Everybody goes, boom. I know what that means. You're here to rescue. You're here to save. Now, the way Jesus pronounces here in this passage that he's going to save is that he's going to give his life for His sheep that is on behalf of or in place of. He's going to be the substitute for his sheep. And he makes the comparison between this himself as good shepherd and one who's simply a hired shepherd. And the difference is that the good shepherd cares for his sheep. He loves his sheep. And he will give himself for his sheep. When the wolf comes, the hired shepherd shepherd runs and says they're yours you can have them enjoy your lunch but when the good shepherd is there he loves the sheep and cares for them he says no take me I will give myself so the sheep can live and he says I care for them which means I give myself voluntarily not coerced to do it, but I do it because I care for them. And so uh, I, I, I have authority over, over my own life. He says, verse, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for, on behalf of, in the place of the sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, on behalf of them, in their place. Verse uh, 17 for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down, I lay it down of my own accord. It says this is, this is I want to do this. I don't do this begrudgingly. I do this because I want to do this. These are my sheep. I want to do this. I care for them, you see. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up again. And then he says, this charge I've received from my father. It's rather like we find in, in, in Romans and chapter 5. And verse 6. He for us, you see. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for, right, on behalf of, in place of, the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for, on behalf of, in place of, a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare today. But God has a whole different brand of love. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us, right? on behalf of us, in our place. And so we see it, you see. That's the sense of it. I know you know this, but this is Sunday, so we think about these things. I mean, I've thought about this all week, but you think about it today. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is for us. And he does it for us voluntarily because he cares for us. And he does it for us too in conjunction with the Father because it's the will of his Father. In this passage in Isaiah chapter 50, there's a wonderful expression that I often miss if I read it too fast. But let me look at this again. Isaiah chapter 50 says, The Lord God has given me, now this is, as we, as we see it now, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ Speaking, This is the second person of the Trinity speaking in this passage. This isn't just about Isaiah speaking of himself. But this is, this is the second person of the Trinity. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear and I, have, I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgracing. This, this little expression, the Lord God opened my ear. Yes, to hear. But there was a, a ritual in ancient Israel. You know, that if a man became poor in ancient Israel, he could indenture himself to a master so that he could work and live. And, and, and there were laws about that, that type of service. And after seven years, that servant was to go free. And he would go free with a certain bounty, with a certain uh, uh, compensation, if you will, for having served his master for these seven years. But there are situations in which the servant might say, but I love my master. And I want to stay, and I want to I want to, be a servant forever, a voluntary. I want to be a voluntary servant to him forever. I want to stay in his service. And he could, but there was a ritual that went along with that desire. And the ritual was this. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and Exodus chapter 21. The, the ritual went like this that the servant would place himself in front of the doorpost of the master's house. And I assume he would stand sort of sideways because he would take the earlobe and I suppose put it against the the doorpost. And the master would take an awl, one of those little things that you... And he would stick it. And this isn't that bad. This happens in malls all over the country every day. In way worse places than earlobes these days. So anyway, so he'd take it and he'd stick it in the ear and he would pound a hole, he would open his ear, into the lobe and attach him (laughs) to the house. What would that mean? It would mean, I belong to this master And I only hear his voice. He's opened my ear. And so, what the second person of the Trinity is saying of the first person of the Trinity, I'm the servant of the Lord. I only hear his voice. Remember when Jesus came, he said, I only say what I hear the Father saying. I only do what I see the Father doing. I've come to do the will of my Father. And so you see, when when Jesus comes, yes, he has the authority to take up his life and to put it down and all of that. Because that authority has been given to him by the Father. But it's the will of the Father that he comes and redeems these people and gives himself for them. This isn't Jesus acting on his own. This is God, father, son, together. And and there's a a little expression, and you don't have to know this to be a Christian, but it doesn't hurt you to know it as you're doing reading as a Christian. Uh, The older theologians had this expression, and the expression was the covenant of redemption. Now, you know, we Presbyterians are into covenants, but, the, so it really fits our tradition. But the covenant of redemption. So we have a lot of these. There's the covenant of grace and the covenant of works and the covenant of this and the covenant of that. But the covenant of redemption. Covenant meaning that uh, there's a loving agreement. But this covenant of redemption is within the Trinity himself. Would that be an intra-Trinitarian covenant? But it's between, first, the father and the son. Where the father originates the plan, the son agrees to execute the plan through his own execution, and the spirit agrees to come and apply the benefits of the plan. And, and, so, and, and this happened, we realize, before the foundations of the world. We read about things like that. We read, for instance, in Ephesians 1, that uh, we've been chosen in him, when? Before the foundations of the world. And so even before the foundations of the world, this, this whole plan of redemption was, was in God, if you will. And, and so, so, so the father uh, asks, elects, if you will, chooses, the scripture says, the son to come, and to be the redeemer. And he makes promises to him. That I'll prepare a body for you. I'll give you a body. I'll, you'll, you'll be born. And he says that. I'll, I'll give you a people. And, and, and I'll vindicate you. And, and you're going to give yourself. For these people to redeem them. And, 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 and I'll vindicate you. By way of resurrection. By way of ascension. By way of enthronement by giving you an inheritance, this people of your own possession, right? And and, and the nations and, and the new heavens and the new earth. And the son agrees then to be the redeemer, to empty himself, as the scripture says, and to be born in the likeness of men and to humble himself as a servant to the point of Death, of giving himself, of death, even death, horrible death, on a cross, you see. And, and so he trusts his Father, and he comes and he does this, this work to redeem, to give himself. And then the Father and the Son send the Spirit who comes and applies this work of the Son to those for whom the Father has given him. You, you, you get that? I mean, I, you know that, I think. But, but it's just, I like to think about that. That we're saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And 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 it isn't just one or the other, but we give thanks to Father for our salvation and Son for our salvation, and the Spirit for our salvation. All of that, it's a work, it's a work of God. But you see, what that does for us, with with it, how that lifts my spirits on a Sunday, is to realize that I really am secure. That I really am. Secure. This has been, this redemption, if I could personalize it, my salvation is, has been a work of God. Not my own work, obviously, but a work, if you will, of God. He really is my shepherd, Jesus. I really shall not want. I I don't know what your life has been like this week. I know some of your lives we've talked. I don't know what your burden at the moment if you have one, what your joy at the moment if you have one, what you're dreading what you're wondering about, what you're confused about. But this very one has come and said, I'm your shepherd. I will protect you. I'll provide for you. I will help you in the midst of all of this. Take a moment. Think about that. Are you secure in that? He says, yes, you should be secure in that because I care for you. How do I know you care for me? Well, I gave myself for you. Right? I'm your shepherd. You needn't i lead you. Paths of righteousness. For the sake of my name. You bear my name. And for the sake of my name, I'll lead you into paths. To right paths. You can trust me. And, and I know there are times when you're on these paths and you wonder, Really? So, You can trust me. Don't you know the sheep were wondering often where in the world are we going? It was so nice back there. There was a stream, there was grass to eat. I don't know what turned sheep on. But whatever it was, it was there, and now the shepherd says, Nope, we're gonna move along, we gotta go this way, and you go, Well, this is up a hill and this is a little And so we wonder about these paths, no little bit of right paths. It's our shepherd, shall not one he lead us in right paths. he restore our souls. In the midst of wherever we are, He'll restore our souls. He really, really will, you see. Because in His work for us, He reconciled us to God. We know that. We belong to God. We're His. He did it. Even though we may walk in the most difficult places we could ever imagine, through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't have to be afraid. Because he's there as the shepherd, his rod and his staff. His rod is there to bonk anything that's an adversary. His staff is there to pull us out of whatever difficulties. We could heard him anoint our head with oil. He'll fill us with joy. He'll set a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Goodness and mercy. We'll be at nipping at our heels all the time. It'll be pursuing us. All the days of our lives and we'll dwell with him in the house of the Lord forever. That's this sense of it. I'm secure in that. Why? Because this was God's deal. It was his plan. He carried it out. He carried it out perfectly through the perfect son. And and the perfect son achieved it. And the the perfect spirit came to apply it. And it's a work of God and it's full and it's rich. And it really is good. Now, in this atonement, as we call it, uh, some people say that this is just an expression of the love of God. And it certainly is an expression of the love of God. It's an expression of the love of God. In fact, in Romans in chapter 5, we, we see it uh, expressed. I think I read it a minute ago. Uh, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So as Christ is dying, we see the great love of God. and It, it is a demonstration of of the love of God. Some say it's simply an expression of the love of God because, because Jesus takes the worst hit that any human being could ever take from other human beings and, and he he takes the the most evil of evils and the, the hideousness of the beatings and the, and the grotesqueness of the crucifixion and all of that. And he doesn't retaliate. He simply forgives. And you go, yes, that's a great expression of the love of God, but it's, 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 it's more than that. So, some people say that it's a, it's, it's, it's an example to us of faithfulness. Jesus lived a faithful life and he lived faithful to his father even though it met his death. And you go, yes, it did. And it's a great example for us, this life of Jesus. In fact, when the apostle Peter writes to a suffering church, he says Jesus is our example in the midst of, in the midst of our suffering. And in First Peter in chapter 2 verse 20, he says, what credit is it If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's exactly what Jesus did. He did good and he suffered for it. So Peter said, for to, uh, to this, you've been called, that is to this kind of suffering, even for good. You've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's our example. And so Jesus clearly is an example of faithful living, even in the midst of suffering. But it's more than that. You said, well, well, Christ defeated evil on the cross. He certainly did. In fact, In fact, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 2, we read this, that he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, in him. And so on the cross, Jesus defeated sin and death and evil and all of that and, 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 and Satan. But it's more than that. It's a propitiation for our sins. Um, we read that in, or I read it in, in the assurance this morning that I read from First John in chapter 2 that he is the propitiation for our sins not only our sins but the sins of the world in other words there's no other propitiation anywhere in the world but this propitiation that comes from Jesus the way Paul puts it in Romans and uh, chapter 3 is like this he says but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This word propitiation. Um should make sure you know this word. It's a great word told you before when my son was little we used to not, did we didn't play horse we played propitiation you know so he'd learn how to spell it and uh, the games went longer and I could talk to him about why I chose such an obscure word that we, was going, we were going to use to, to play that day and uh, he learned a lot of theological words uh, playing, uh, playing in, the, in, the, in the driveway but this word propitiation means to satisfy the wrath That God really does have a case against us because he's holy. And our sin against him raises up within him that which is right, which is a righteous wrath against evil, against sin. This is not a bad thing in God, it's a good thing in God. Now when we talk about ourselves being wrathful. That can be a bad thing because we're irrational. We fly off the handle. We can't always evaluate things right. We we, we put things out of proportion. And so when when someone takes our parking pass, our parking place, we say things that we shouldn't say. Not proportional to that particular event, right? But we overdo it. There's a great expression, sad expression. In the early parts of Genesis, where it speaks of a man who said, of, of whom it is said that he killed a man for bruising him. Way over the top. Way over the top. That's our wrath. And so when we think about wrath, we think it's a bad thing. But with God, it's a righteous thing. It's the right thing. It's the appropriate thing. He knows exactly what wrath is and the measure of it. And when we sin against him because he's holy, the holiest of holy, then it's huge. And it means our death. It means our separation from life for all eternity. I've used this illustration before. Jerry Bridges made it better, so I'll use his illustration the way he puts it. He says, suppose you bought a $300 rug and someone came and spilled ink on it. That'd be bad. But let's say you bought a $300,000 rug and someone came and spilled the same ink and the same amount of ink on that rug. That would be really bad. What's the difference? The value of what was harmed this is God who is a f- sinned against. And so to be just, then he needs to, to be consistent with his justice. Deal with it. We, we can't deal with it. We won't deal with it. Because we can't live a perfect life and get out of the situation because we're already in the situation. We've already sinned. And we can't pay for it because if we did, it would take our lives. So there we are, you see. And so in love, this is the measure of his love, he sends his son, the substitute for us, to do for us what we can't do, to live perfectly and to take the guilt of our sins so that we would live. John Stott, in a wonderful book, if you haven't read this book, you can't, you should. It it may take you a long time to read it, but but it's, it's good to do. It's a book called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. He puts it like this. He says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Right. That's the essence of sin. I'm God. I'm going to substitute myself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Prophet Isaiah puts it better than John Stott did. In Isaiah in chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, we esteemed Jesus to be like any other man, any other sinner. Smitten by God because of his own sin. But Isaiah clarifies, but he was pierced, not for his own transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That doesn't make God a cosmic child abuser. It makes God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Loving towards sinners because the Son takes the guilt of sinners and the Father lays it on him, and the Son takes it willingly, knowing his Father will vindicate him, and he does, and amazingly. He vindicates the son by raising him from the dead and proving that he's the son of God that it wasn't his sin. He vindicates the son amazingly by uh, uh, ascending him and seating him and him in glory to rule and reign. But amazingly, he vindicates the son by giving him this people that he has bought with his own blood. And amazingly, for you and me, that is, for any and all who believe, that means that we are reconciled to God. We're justified, declared righteous in his sight. I don't know what kind of week you had, but there's times that if someone had told me, Bill, you're righteous in the sight of God, I would have looked back rather quizzically, going, Really? I don't know if anybody told me that all week. <laughs> so I can say it to you now. I can say it to me now. If you're a believer in Jesus, whatever week you had, you are righteous in his sight. Forgiven your sins. United to the Father through the Son. By the power of the Holy Spirit. That he is your shepherd. You needn't want. He'll give you green pastures. He'll lead you righteously. Righteous paths will be yours. He'll restore your soul even if he takes you into the most difficult of places. You needn't fear he's with you. He'll deal with your enemies. He'll keep you safe. He'll nurture and provide for you. He'll anoint your head with oil. you will be filled with joy. Goodness and mercy will follow you. You'll be his forever. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it, He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body for you. Me, for you. The same way he took the cup. After giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me what we remember, he for us, his blood for us, his life for us in obedience, but his death for us, satisfy the wrath of God and to say, you can trust me because I care for you. And we say, how do you care for us? and he says look let's pray Father in heaven I'm thinking that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he also not also along with him graciously give us all things he didn't spare your son but you gave him and thus we trust you with everything we give you thanks and on this day, on this Sunday, right now, I pray, there are any who do not believe that they would believe. And for those who do believe that, you would grant assurance, that you would grant the grace of assurance. I know, God, some of us struggle with that. And, and maybe today is the only day of the week we'll be able to to know that, to be able to live in it. In that assurance. And so please grant that grace. At least for right now. in This place in your presence. And then would it carry over? For at least another week. Till we have time to regroup. And come back and hear it again. So please now take this bread and this juice. And set it apart in such a way that we know. That we're in the very presence of this one. Who gave himself for us. And this I pray in Jesus' name.